Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Now, lots of people talk about Marxism, but uh, very few seem to know what it actually is. That sometimes you hear, okay, what is Marxism? Well, Marxism's irrelevant. Marxism's old. That's, you know, 19th century stuff. Other people will say, or the same people will say, Marxism is a, a danger to our society, it's corrupting the youth, it's uh, going to bring down Western civilization. So really you've got kind of this Schrodinger's communist, that it's both irrelevant and a danger to society. Now which one is it? It can't be both, it's one or the other. Well the fact is that on university campuses like this, and amongst political figures, repeatedly you hear that Marxism is dead. Marxism is pointless. Marxism is wrong. Well, if Marxism was dead and pointless and wrong and irrelevant, why bother refuting it? Why bother, bother even talking about it? You know, it you, there's a big library just up the road uh, on campus, and it's got thousands and thousands of books, many books from the 19th century. Pick any book from the 19th century, and what would it have to tell us about the world of today? For the overwhelming majority of those books, it would have only historical relevance. It would have no real relevance to our life of today. And there's really only two books from the 19th century that speak to us today. One is Darwin's Origin of the Species, and the other is the Communist Manifesto. Read, if you haven't read the Communist Manifesto, I recommend pick it up. I, I assume we've got copies over there, do we, Adam? We do. And it, you will find so many uh, answers to the questions of today. It, actually, in many ways, the Communist Manifesto is more relevant today than it was in Marx's day. It talks about globalization when, in Marx's day, the world market barely existed. You know, it's, it talks about the state, it talks about exploitation, it talks about philosophy. That's, uh, so it's one of the most modern books, and I've read it uh, more times than I can count, but every time I read it, I get something new. And so I'd, I'd recommend that to everybody here. If you want to find out what Marxism really is, you have to read Marx and you have to talk to Marxists because there's so many books out there, yes, and you will do uh, courses on campus to sort of interpret Marxism and the interpreters of, of Marxism. And, and quite often, they're quite laughable straw men. Right, that Marxism is economic determinism. It's all economics. It's not true. Blatantly not true. Or, uh, you know, Marxism is class reductionist. No, that's not true either. Marx explains there is a class base to society, but on top of that is a superstructure and politics, and politics really matters. 
if Marxism was economic determinist, if economics determines everything, then why on earth are we bothering organizing this meeting? Right? Why, why would we bother with politics if economics determined everything? But that does that mean that economics and class is irrelevant? Well, the people who try and deny class, they're pushing it all the way over the other side. And, and so this is why you know, we're, we're organizing meetings like this to find out what Marxism really is and find out that it does actually give a lot of answers to the problems of today. Now, we've got a decent number of people today. In fact, just the other day in Edmonton, we had uh, 115 people out in, in Alberta, Redneck, Alberta. Uh, it's not true, actually. I've, I've got lots of fantastic Albertan friends. But there's this stereotype of, you know, right-wing Alberta, nobody's interested. Well, actually, in Alberta, due to the failures of the Kenny government, and the crisis of the system, many people are interested in revolutionary ideas. That's what's happening in Alberta, and that's what's happening internationally. You're getting revolutionary movements internationally, especially in the COVID crisis. That capitalism has shown itself to totally fail. Totally fail that more and more people are looking for answers to the problems of the system. And, you know, I can say that. Maybe you don't believe me. Well, I'll give you some hard figures. Right? So, for example, 70% of the population say that large corporations and the wealthy do not pay their fair share. 53% say the economy needs to be radically transformed. 58%, actually, this was before COVID. General opinions have moved to the left since. But before COVID, 58% supported socialism. These are Canadian numbers. Right? And, and, and this, doesn't, uh, this is not surprising when you see what's happening in the economy. The top 10% of Canadians own 56% of all wealth. The bottom 40% have 1.2% of all wealth. Incredible disparity. During COVID, Canadian billionaires added $78 billion. Why people lost their jobs, why people got sick, died, uh, lost their homes. You've got a homelessness epidemic. The billionaires are just amassing more and more wealth. They've got so much wealth, they don't even know what to do with it. They're taking trips to the moon. I guess they haven't got to the moon yet, but... Uh, you know, I would, I'd be all in favor of that if they just stayed there, right? So uh, people see the injustices in society and they're starting to radicalize. And we've got a young audience here. And, and I have to say, well, on the one side, uh, you are part of one of the most radical generations in a century. But I also say the reason you're one of the most radical generations in a century is because you all picked a very, very bad time to be born. That, uh, like, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, and um, uh, my generation was poorer than my parents, the boomers, but the millennials are poorer than the Gen Xers, and the Zoomers are poor, uh, poorer than the millennials. And you see nothing but 
economic crisis for all of your adult lives. So it's not surprising that people come to revolutionary conclusions, which is more and more the case. Actually, a, a poll came out just the other day uh, that 35% of Canadians support moving away from capitalism. I oh, say, hey, 35, that's not that high. Um, well, only 25% oppose moving away from capitalism. More people want to move away from capitalism than support capitalism in Canada. Now, the middle ground is not quite sure. Now, 35%, that's not a revolution. I'm not going to pretend it's a revolution. Uh, that'd be more like 65%. But 35% is not nothing. And 35% is more than actually support capitalism. And it shows there is a growing radicalization in society. And that's why people want to know, what is Marxism? What are these revolutionary ideas that I'm supposed to be so afraid of? And can they actually provide solutions to the crisis in society and the fact that the wealthy keep on getting richer and richer and richer, while the economy stagnates or goes into crisis, and the poor gets poorer and poorer and poorer. You know, a, a great statement by Marx is, social conditions determine social consciousness. If capitalism was great, if everybody had a job, if there was full employment, free education, decent housing, if you didn't have to pay 99% of your wages for your rent, I may be exaggerating, but only by a few percent. If that was the situation, if everything was great, then I'd be a complete utopian and nobody would be interested in what I had to say or what we have to say. But the fact is, many people see there is something deeply wrong in society and looking for the ideas and the methods that will provide a solution. Okay, so going into... What is Marxism? Well, a lot of people think Marxism is about economics, but actually Marx and Engels, the founders of Marxism, although they didn't call it Marxism that back then because that would have been a little bit egotistical, they called it scientific socialism, that they started off as philosophy students. They were philosophers. And they were part of a philosophical movement called the Young Hegelians. And part of that, they were materialists and they believed in dialectics. Dialectical materialism was the philosophy of Marxism. What does that mean? Well, materialism, lots of, many people don't uh, understand what this word means. And in fact, a lot of words in, uh, in science, in various sciences have different meanings what they have in common parlance. So materialism, if you're materialistic in common parlance, you know, it means that you're, you know, you want money, you're greedy, stuff like that. But in the philosophical, and, if, and f philosophical materialism is opposed to philosophical idealism, and, you know, common parlance, idealism, you know, you know that you're tr truthful, you've got high, mind, you know, high values, or the rest of it. Okay, but that's not what it means in philosophy. Philosophical materialism is that you base yourself upon the material world, upon material facts, material 
existence. And idealism means that you base yourself on the mind, upon the supernatural, upon God, upon the absolute idea. And material reality is merely a, uh, a distorted, uh, disfigured reflection of the pure idea. Well, Marxism is materialist. We base ourselves on the real world. That doesn't mean we did deny thought. Of course not. But we say that you don't have thoughts without a brain, you don't have a brain without a body, and you don't have a body without lunch. You know, you've got to eat food from the material environment. So that's materialism. You base yourself on real existence, real things. You know, and, and some of you might be doing sort of first-year philosophy classes, and you'll be asked, you know, how do you know that this table exists? Or how do you know if this textbook exists? And, and I'd su suggest if anybody asks you that, you stick your hand up and say, it better bloody exist because I paid $150 for it. So it's, it exists, and you assume it exists. And, and you base yourselves on the real world. But materialism left on its own becomes an idea called empiricism. Uh, the basic statement of empiricism is what you see is what you get. And, and that ends up being a bit boring. And that ends up being a philosophy for no change ever. Right? What you see is what you get. A thing is a thing is a thing is a thing. And it never changes into another thing. And so Marx and Engels looked for a philosophy that encompasses change. Right? And that is dialectics. Change. That the only constant is change. Everything changes. Nothing is static. No. There's, uh, I, if you've been down to uh, the Don Valley at Queen Street, there's a very nice bridge there. And over the bridge, it says, uh, the river I step in is not the river I stand in. Right? It's a great dialectical statement. You can step into a river, but once you've stepped in it, it's not the same river. The water has passed you by. You know, it both is the same river and it is not. Uh, change is a constant, right? But change, but di dialectics also says that change is not linear. Change is not gradualist. That for long periods of time, epochs even, there could appear to be no change at all. Incredible stasis. Uh, incredible stasis in, in society, Credible stasis in art and culture and science and the rest of that. But then you get these moments of rapid revolutionary change. And, and, and that's the sort of one of the most important laws of dialectics known as quantity inequality. That you get periods of not much happening, but you're building up contradictions within a system, within a society, until bam things change. And you see this in the workplace. People can have their wages cut. People can have their pensions cut. People, uh, half the workers can be laid off and there's more work on everybody else. And people will accept more and more and more and more. And then there's like one final insult. You know, uh, the five minute reduction to a coffee break or something. And then everybody goes, I've had enough. I've had enough. 
I'm out, I need a union, I'm going on strike, etc. Right? You see the horrendous conditions at Amazon warehouses. And you think about, why do people put up with that? Because they have to and they don't, uh, and, and they don't see any alternative until it just gets so bad. And now you're starting to get union drives at Amazon workplaces. And even in COVID, in, in the worst period, you had spontaneous walkouts. You had spontaneous work refusals due to unhealthy work situations. You have that revolution in consciousness. But it's not linear. And when you're in a period of stasis, you can think that nothing will ever change. But you have to understand that things can change, that they do change, and they're inevitably going to change. Right? Like an earthquake or a hurricane. They are rare events, but upon large enough historical timescales, they are certainties. Same with revolutions, I will add. If you study history, revolutions are an absolute historical certainty. Uh, whether, you know, how long it takes to happen and what you've got to do to prepare for it, that's another question. So Marx and Engels started with dialectical philosophy. They, they wanted a philosophy change and, and and one of the sort of the best statements of Marx's philosophy is philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways the point however is to change it right and so they use the dialectical philosophy to analyze society and actually although on campuses there you'll find an opposing viewpoint that has decided that change is impossible. And so you know, Marx says the point, uh, philosophers only interpreted the world, the point is to change it. But academics say change is impossible, let's reinterpret it. Right? You've got to actually base yourself on material reality if you want to make change. And if you want to make change, you need a revolutionary philosophy. Now, if anybody here has millions of dollars and a trust fund, I can see why you'd be perfectly happy with the status quo. But I'm suspecting that the most of you are facing 20, 30, 40, 50, $60,000 of student debt and probably not much prospect of a job at the end of it. Uh, unless, you know, daddy's going to give you a job. I don't know. I don't know who you are. Um, if Davies is going to give you a job, you're probably happy with the status quo and you're probably happy with idealist imaginations of things that never change. If, however, your life sucks, like millions and billions of other people, uh, sorry, if you, uh, uh, maybe you'll do better. But statistically, it's not looking good, sorry. Uh, then you need a philosophy of change and you need to change it to make it better. Uh, because you can, there's only a small number of people provide, get individual solutions to the crisis. We need collective solutions. All right. So Marx and Engels used this dialectical philosophy and analyzed history and developed an idea. So second part of Marxism is historical materialism. In fact, there's a great little essay by Lenin called The Three Component Parts of Marxism. And he said Marxism was based upon German philosophy, dialectical materialism, upon uh, English economics, 
I'll come to that later. That's the labor theory of value. And French politics and historical materialism. So they studied history and, and came to the conclusion, again, actually on campus, you may find some postmodernist ideologies which say there is no such thing as history. History is just stuff that happened. There is no progress. There is no meaning to history. Well, Marxists believe there is a meaning to history. And to say there is no uh, development or progress in history, we, we think that is the reflection of a utterly pessimistic, miserable psychology philosophy that sees society at an impasse and then has, sees capitalism as an impasse and has come to the conclusion that all progress is impossible. Like I agree, progress under capitalism is not possible, but that doesn't mean that human race is uh, destined to never progress. But what do we mean by progress? Like in, in response to the postmodernists, who say, oh, are you, are you saying the people now are more cultured or more uh, moral or truer or more just than, than people in old societies? No, that's not what we say. Remember, we're materialists. We base ourselves upon material reality. These moral questions are quite abstract, idealist, right? But what is history? What is, what is a thread through human history? from primitive societies, actually communistic primitive societies with no classes, to the first class societies, be it slave societies and then feudal societies and then capitalist societies. What is a common thread through all of these modes of production is they all have developed the means of production. They've all developed productivity of labor. Right? That's the materialism. That society that can make more stuff will uh, outcompete a society that can't. Right? And that's not a moral question. It's not a moral judgment. It is merely an observation. It's a very powerful observation. That a society that can meet more human needs will develop. And in fact, a more moral society was the primitive communistic society, the class of society. But this, and people, you know, all the anthropological evidence is the vast majority of human history is people living in equality. Actually, for those of you, for those who say that communism, socialism is against human nature, well, the period where Homo sapiens evolved, the majority of time evolving, was in communistic equality. But it was an equality of poverty. People didn't really live beyond the age of 30. Right? And then society started developing a surplus. Right? And that was a step forward. There's a development of the means of production. Uh, it was believed to be in animal husbandry, but it could equally be in farming and stuff like that. People started developing a surplus. And that allowed a section of society to sit on their bums and think. Uh, and uh, while well, another section of society toiled away. This is the economic basis of slavery. 
right? And you think slavery is one of the most immoral things that we can imagine. But slavery, relative to a, a, an equality of poverty, is actually, in many ways, a step forward. Don't, please don't misquote me in saying I'm defending and proposing slavery. I'm merely explaining history. That this allowed, and, and what a, a lot of the philosophical ideas that uh, we base ourselves upon were based upon Greek philosophy. And how did you know Plato and Socrates and Aristotle? How were they able to sit around and philosophize? Because some slave made their lunch, and without that, society would not progress. So it's not from slavery that humanity becomes free, but through slavery. It is a stage. And then after slavery was feudalism, and after feudalism was capitalism. They're all different kinds of slavery, right? In the feudal society, the serf is a slave for three days a week. In capitalist society, you're a slave for the number of hours you sell of your life to the boss. It is different forms of slavery. And we base ourselves upon a new society, a communistic society, a classless society, where we would eradicate that slavery and have equality, but instead of equality of poverty, equality of riches, equality of wealth. So that's historical materialism. Uh, and, but before you know, we get to communism, we have to understand, okay, what are these different modes of production? What are these different societies that uh, historical materialism was based on? And so Marx and Engels, actually, you know, I think they sort of drew lots, and uh, one, they, they weren't, neither of them were economic students, and uh, I guess Marx lost, and he was forced to go to the British Museum and read a bunch of dry economics textbooks and, and to develop the ideas of Marxist economics, the labor theory of value. And I'm really, actually, the majority of Marxism is really an analysis of capitalism. Uh, Marx wrote, you know, three volumes of Capital. And, and for any of you who are thinking of reading them, my recommendation to you is don't. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you get a lot of teenagers who wake up one morning and decide they're a communist and go off and read Capital and then drown because uh, it's a very dense book. Uh, it's a fantastic book, but I, there are other works of Marxist economics that, that are a lot more introductory. Read them first before you go into capital. But uh, they developed this idea that labor is the source of all value. And, and actually, that, actually, that's not Marx's idea. Uh, Marx took, took up that idea, but he didn't invent it. Uh, the person who mostly came up with the labor theory of value, actually, anybody know? Adam Smith. Adam Smith, supposedly right-wing guru, you know, the, the right-wingers love the wealth of nations. Well, the wealth of nations talks about the labor theory of value, right? That human labor is what creates value when commodities are exchanged in a capitalist economy. Um, they try not to talk about that now, because once you start upon the road of the labor theory of value, you actually get to Marxism. Uh, and so 
present-day economists don't like the labor theory of value, and they try to ignore that bit of an Adam Smith. But um, commodities, when they're exchanged, have a certain amount of labor in them, socially necessary labor, average socially necessary labor uh, is when you exchange commodities. But then if you're just exchanging, you know, 10 hours labor for 10 hours labor, you know, a camera for a cell phone or something like that, things approximately equal value, where, do, uh, where, does, where do profits come from? Where does exploitation come from? And then here is the second pillar of Marxism, is the concept of labor power and surplus value. That there is a special commodity, a special commodity known as labor power that workers, that workers sell. That workers, working class people, have had all of their uh, wealth, all of their means of production, taken away from them, and all that you've got to sell is your ability to work. You're forced to sell, you're, uh, you're forced to work for another who owns the means of production, who owns factories, who owns shops, who owns raw materials. You're forced, forced to work for another, uh, otherwise you starve. And, and you sell that commodity, your ability to work, on the free market. You're not selling the, the hours of work that you do, you're selling your ability to work. The food you eat, the clothes you wear, the shelter, your education, uh, the reproduction of the human race. You're selling the recreation of the worker as a worker. And it may only take, say, four or five hours of labor to recreate the worker as a worker. That doesn't stop the worker working eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours a day. And that's where profits come from. That's where surplus value come from. The unpaid labor of the working class. The surplus value. And that's what divides society into classes. On the one side, you have people who have nothing to sell but their labor power. And on the other side, you have the capitalists who have all of the wealth who have all of the means of production. Irreconcilable classes. Irreconcilable. And you cannot reform that out of the system. Right? Actually, you increase wages, it comes out of profits. You increase profits, it comes off the backs of working class people. And it's a zero-sum game. One goes up, the other goes down. And different, and these two classes in capitalist society, workers, bosses end up having a totally different psychology. The capitalist, as capital personified, sees themselves as a strong, successful individual. Whereas the worker, everything they do is collective. In fact, no worker works as an individual. Every worker works together with their workmates, and, they, and nobody produces a complete commodity. You know, show me the person who made your cell phone. Show me the per I bet none of you have a car, but if you had a car, you know, show me the person who made your car. It's thousands of people, right? And uh, it's part of a social division of labor in capitalist 
society. So that's the sort of root of Marxist economics. And out of that comes crisis. Because here's the problem. The workers aren't paid the value of everything they produce. Can't be paid the value of everything produced, otherwise there'd be no profits. But then, okay, all these commodities are produced, and then they have to be sold on the market. Who buys those commodities? Workers. But the workers haven't been paid enough to buy all the stuff they just produced. Right? And the capitalist system could get round this. Well, I've, you know, the capitalist skims some off the top, buys a yacht, a private jet, caviar, other things that I won't mention. Um, and they, you know, so they, they take a bit and they reinvest some of it to improve the productivity of labor. They export some of it to foreign markets. But what happens when they reinvest it to improve the productivity of labor? More stuff is produced. What happens when they export some of it to foreign markets? More stuff is produced. And eventually this contradiction between the limited cons uh, consumptive ability of the workers and the exponential increase of productivity and productive potential reaches a crisis, a crisis of overproduction. And that's what we're in right now, exacerbated by the COVID crisis. But it was going to happen anyway. That's the crisis we're in. And then that's what brings us to politics. That's what brings us to revolutionary politics, is first of all, the workers don't understand their workers, right? Work workers, are, workers started off as peasants who had their lands taken away and forced into the cities, right? Workers don't understand that, and are merely raw material for exploitation. But then people start, working class people start having, coming to this conclusion, all of us who are selling our labor have got something in common with each other versus the boss, the capitalist, who's got, and they've got something in common with each other. And class consciousness starts arising. And people form unions. And people form political parties. They get organized. They demand higher wages, higher minimum wage, healthcare, pensions, uh, decent health and safety, right? Health and safety, that's a major issue in the pandemic right now. You know, the capitalist, you know, they're quite happy. They're in their mansions. They can socially isolate. Although, uh, at, in the first stage of the pandemic, you saw some of them really complaining about doing their own groceries and their own laundry because they were afraid to let the help in, right? Um, but so they were quite safe. But it was like, send the workers in, keep production going, essential workers. Right? Actually, another thing I talk about working class a lot. And yeah, as another idea in universities, the working class doesn't exist. And, and really, if anyone dares say that, I would, yeah, be, yeah, it's like, how dare you after the COVID pandemic, when the, you know, the apparently the best and the brightest, the bankers, the corporate heads, rest of it, we're all hiding at home while the essential workers were making everything that makes, work, uh, makes society function, you know, like re relying upon Uber Eats or Amazon deliveries, 
Who do you think makes all of that stuff? Who do you think does all those deliveries? Who do you think works in those Amazon warehouses? It is working class people. In fact, a number of years ago, I was at an event in Montreal, and, and, and this academic guy sort of like said, oh, you Marxists, you're all sort of very old-fashioned. Don't you know that the working class doesn't exist? And then somebody else at the meeting put their hand up and said, you know what? I'm really sick coming to meetings, and people keep telling me I don't exist. Right? Nothing, not a light shines, not a wheel turns without the working class. And that's the basic division in society. Uh, now, I, I don't have time to talk about uh, oppression and racism and sexism and all the rest of it, uh, all of those oppressions uh, that are very real in class society. They are very useful for class society to divide and rule and, and set worker against worker and, and, push down, you know, and push people down into worse conditions. Uh, I don't, I, if that comes up in the discussion, I think that's cool. Uh, but I don't have time to uh, address it uh, in this discussion, although we will be having other discussions on all of the various different forms of oppression and how capitalism uses oppression to sustain itself. But people come to uh, class-conscious conclusions and eventually come to a conclusion that this society cannot continue. And, and as I said, more and more are coming to that conclusion. 35% of Canadians say that we need to move beyond capitalism. We need to move away from capitalism. More and more are coming to that conclusion. And, and we're saying, you've got to get organized. You've got to get organized. Capitalism is not going to overthrow itself. Capitalism isn't just going to collapse. In fact, Capitalism has been in some form of crisis or another since the First World War. Capitalism, world capitalism almost collapsed after the Russian Revolution in 1917. There was a wave of revolutions, but unfortunately they were defeated. Uh, due in, in some situations to the mistakes of revolutionaries. That there was a revolution in, after the Russian Revolution, there was a revolution in Germany. And, and sadly the German uh, uh, revolutionaries made a bunch of mistakes, and, and that led to the rise of fascism. But between 1918 and 1923, the German workers could have come to power, and we would have been living in a probably a century of socialism ever since. Uh, so organization matters. Yes, Marxism is not economic determinism, because organization really matters, and education really matters. Learning uh, about what are the ideas of Marxism, learning how to fight, how to change the world, really matters. And we found that hundreds and hundreds of people, especially young people like yourself, are coming to revolutionary conclusions and want to get organized. Because you understand that as individuals, you have no power. You are merely raw material for exploitation as individuals. But organized, organized in large enough numbers can change the world. And there are huge fights coming. There are huge fights coming. Actually, 35% want to overthrow capitalism. Um, I'm glad it's not higher than that, to be honest, because we're not organized enough. We're not ready. 
but fight back, international Marxist tendency, is the largest uh, Marxist organization in Canada, the largest uh, left-wing organization in Canada. And we've been doubling every couple of years over the recent period, precisely because of the crisis. And so I really appeal to everybody here. Let's have a great discussion. Feel free to sort of bring up questions, concerns, criticisms, anything like that. But if you agree with what we got to say, get active, get organized, and join. Because only then can we end all of the injustices of capitalism. Only then can we stop them using working class people as cannon fodder in the economy. Only then can we fight oppression, racism, sexism, homophobia, all of the evils of this system, environmental destruction and war. They're all part and parcel of the capitalist system. It can be overthrown. Again, historically, revolutions happen. You have to ask yourself, well, what are you going to do prior to them happening? How can you help them win? Because if we don't organize, there's actually, again, you look at the history. If you don't organize, there's a rich history of revolutions that fail. Germany is an example. It's other situations. There's many situations where working class people and oppressed people have risen up only to be defeated because of bad leadership or no leadership. So join the struggle, learn the lessons of past victories and defeats, and so to help the working class to win. And that is what Marxism is all about. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.